In the message today, Pastor Josh Brady begins a three-week series leading up to Easter Sunday that walks us through the final moments before Jesus' crucifixion and ultimately his resurrection. Today, Josh is preaching from John chapter 18 as we take a look at Jesus' betrayal and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Our prayer is that we would be challenged and changed by the truth of God's Word today. We are going to journey over these next three weeks leading up to Easter Sunday through in real time, probably just, uh, I don't know, 48 to to 72 hours, the, the last moments that Christ was here breathing on this side of eternity, right before he goes to the cross. So if you, if you have your Bibles, would you open to John chapter 18, John chapter 18. And you say, well, Josh, they just read out of John chapter 20. That's correct. And you're going to hear that not only today, but next week and on Easter Sunday or Saturday, depending on when you choose to worship more on that in just a second. Um, but uh, this, this idea of, of John, I love this book and I love really this this disclaimer at the end, right? The whole reason that John writes this book, the whole reason we get this gospel letter is so that we may know that Jesus is the Christ and by believing in him, we can have eternal life. Like that's just the good news of the gospel and I'm thankful that we get to do it. And you say, Josh, you, you preach a lot out of John. Just I think earlier this summer, we did the seven I am statements that came from this book and, and you would be right. I just think this book has so much to offer to us, but specifically the Easter story, the, the Passion Week narrative. I think John captures aspects of this account that other gospel writers don't, right? So, so we have the synoptic gospels for those New Testament scholars in the room, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are, those are similar in order and similar in, in, in the way things are, are placed throughout the gospel. And then John, he just kind of sits out there in his own space. And, and it's thought of as John being one of, of a snapshot gospel, meaning that, that as Jesus, Jesus has journeyed through his life, John is there just getting glimpses really important, really profound glimpses into what Jesus is doing and why Jesus is doing it. So that's where we find ourselves today in John chapter 18. Now, uh, as you are looking to this, I want to set the stage of where we are as we read verse 1. Verse 1 is going to take us right past midnight on the morning of the Friday before the crucifixion also known as Good Friday. Jesus and his disciples are now going to be gathered at Gethsemane. It's the garden where Jesus Jesus prayed this prayer. So let's jump in, John chapter 18, verse 1. We're going to jump to a couple of different places today, so don't get comfortable here, but this is where we're going to start today, okay? So John 18, verse 1 says this. When Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, John, for whatever reason, he chose not to give us the garden prayer. 
that, that the other gospels do give us. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look in the gospel of Matthew to kind of fill in some space between verses one and verse two, okay? So, so keep your ribbon there, or if you have a way to, to keep your spot in John 18, I want you now to go to Matthew 26. And we're going to read through this pretty quickly, okay? Matthew chapter 26, and it's 10 verses, and we're going to start in verse 36. This is, this is the garden prayer. This is what happened when his disciples came to the garden that morning. Matthew 26, starting in verse 36, when Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which were James and John, he began to become sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you couldn't watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, the second time he went away and prayed. And here's what he prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, let your will be done. And again, and he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went and he prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is here. All right, so that fills in some space for us. Now go back to John 18 gives us what happened between verse 1 and verse 2. So we're in John 18, now verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. All right, church, hear me out. What we're about to unfold here, uh, and I don't know if this is just me, could be, could be, and you say, preacher, are you sure? What we are about to see in John's gospel may shift your understanding of how this night unfolded. Because for whatever reason, sometimes we, we assume what happens just because of what other people have said or because we've watched Passion of the Christ about 32 times. And so sometimes we get our understanding, or maybe even now the chosen. That's the newer series that's out. Let me be clear. Our, our authority is in this book. This is where we understand rightly what happens and what we are to do in response to what happens, okay? So for me, as I am reading through this, my understanding of this scenario, years and years of reading this, has begun to become a little more clear in a way that it wasn't before, okay? This is where things may begin to shift in how your understanding of that night unfolded, okay? Before coming to the garden, what this just told us is Judas grabbed two groups of people, okay? Here are the two groups of people. 
some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So, so there would be, there would be a, a Jewish guard, as it were, the, the, the temple guards. Think of it that way. The men who were responsible for, for making sure there was peace. Now, remember, we're at Passover now. We're in Jerusalem. We, we have thousands and thousands of people flooding into the city to celebrate and observe Passover. So the guard would be assembled and they would be ready. Judas goes and he collects from the, the Jewish side, from Pharisees and the chief priests, some of their guards. But the second group, this is what is important. He collects a band of soldiers. If you're reading out of the NIV this morning, your Bible version says a detachment of soldiers. This is why this is important, okay? That word detachment or this band of soldiers is actually an official term for the Roman guard. It's not just he went and said, hey, you five, get over here. We got some business we need to go handle. What happens here is we see that this official group of Roman soldiers, this detachment or this band of soldiers Specifically, listen to me, go back and read the history. Specifically, up to 1,000 men. Now, I'm not saying there were 1,000 people in the garden at night. But what is clear in the way that John captures this moment is that it wasn't just a few in the garden with Judas and Jesus and the disciples. Don't think in the terms of tens, think in the terms of hundreds. It is easily understandable that it could be well over 500 up to the actual thousand mark that night. That's who Judas went and recruited to come and arrest Jesus on that night. So not only was this group large in number, but they came ready for war, as it says in the, uh, the last part of that verse. There were lanterns, torches, and weapons. Now, we can only speculate why they came packing heat that night. Maybe it's because Jesus, in their mind, had secretly built an army, and they were ready to fight this secret army who was laying in the shadows. Probably not. Maybe they thought that Jesus would have been in a more public place. Maybe they would have found him somewhere not in the garden. Maybe he would have been outside the temple. Maybe he would have been on the streets and maybe they would have to stop an insurrection of Jews who were coming to fight on behalf of Jesus. That's actually plausible. But the fact that there were so many people coming to arrest him and not just walking there, they came battle ready. They had their torches, they had their swords, they had everything. There's one other way, potentially, that this went down. Now, this is speculation. Now, before you start throwing up the red flags, just hear me out, okay? Maybe it was something more that they thought, because no doubt, whether they were Jew or Gentile, Roman, no doubt they had heard, if not themselves, witnessed the miraculous things that Jesus did. Can you imagine the pitch from Judas as he goes and gets these guys? hey, we need to go arrest a guy tonight. Great, let's go. Who is it? Jesus of Nazareth. What? Wait, you, you mean that guy that the wind and the waves obey? That guy that walks on water? Wait, wait, you want us to arrest the guy that when he walks into the presence of demons, they literally try to kill themselves to get out of his presence. That guy you want us to arrest? The guy that causes the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, and the dead to rise? You want us to go arrest that guy? Judas 
had a front row seat to see all of these things. No doubt this is all playing in the back of his mind. So for whatever reason, whatever reason it comes to, that they had to get so many people to arrest Jesus. Jesus heard them coming. I don't think it would be hard. They were in a battle-ready army. Verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to them, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Now, this is important, okay? What did Jesus know? And why did Jesus step out and meet the group before his crew could jump out and meet the group? Remember, right before they came to the garden, Matthew records in the verse prior to the one we just read in the garden prayer, Matthew 26, 35 says this, Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. His disciples were ready. Now, this was also the moment that Jesus is going to speak to, to Peter and, and tell him, hey, <laughs> I hear you. You're, you're going to deny me. Like, like that's going to happen. But they were ready in this moment. It wasn't just Peter. It was all the disciples. They were ready. They may have been in small in number, but they were ready to roll for their Savior. Evidence by how Peter is going to respond in just a few verses. All right. Jesus knew how volatile the situation was. So he steps up and he meets the group, the army, and he asks them a seemingly silly question. Here's the question. Whom do you seek? Did Jesus not know who they were after? Was he like, hey, it's midnight. You fine group of fellas look lost. How can I help you? Do we really think that is what was going through Jesus' mind? Of course he knew. But Jesus, you're going to see this, sovereignly, shepherdly, is setting not only them and the disciples up for God's great glory. Verse 5, don't miss this. They answered him. So they're answering the question, whom do you seek? Here's their answer. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. So Jesus asked the question, whom you were looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. But in our English translation, this is a gross misrepresentation of what he actually said. And you're going to see why in just a moment, okay? Jesus' response in our English, in the ESV, says, I am he. The Greek here is ego emi, E-I-M-I. Literally what he is saying is, I am he. He invokes the sacred name of God for the very first time. Now, he would say, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. There would always be a descriptor that follows. This is the first time we see in Scripture where Jesus invokes Yahweh's name for himself. But it's not just invoking a name. It's not just him saying the name Yahweh. It's the fact that he said it in first person. What he says about himself, he says, I am Yahweh. Jesus uses the sacred name of God in the same way that God used that name with Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3 verse 14. Jesus answers the arresting army. I am Yahweh. This is so powerful. Watch what happens. I don't know why I've never seen this. And you may be sitting here this morning and say, Josh, I've seen this for the first time or, or since the very first time that I read it. Where are you at? I'm just telling you, I've missed it. Evidently, give me some slack. 
Verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. When Jesus revealed to them who he was, they ran away and fell to the ground. Who? Seemingly the entire army. That's the implication in Scripture. So let's take it at 500 people. 500 people who have weapons drawn, ready to arrest Jesus. Jesus speaks to them, and he says to them, I am he. I am Yahweh. Amago, Emmy. And in that moment, they run away, and they fall face down on the ground. Who drew back? All of them. Why did they draw back into the ground? Here's my opinion. Again, be careful when we start giving opinions. I know. Jesus revealed himself to them in this moment. When he used the sacred name of God for that moment, they saw him for who he truly was. So what do they do now? In this moment, they realize we have come to arrest God. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, they have seen the stories, they've heard the stories, and now they are face to face with the one. And seemingly in this moment, Jesus has revealed to them something that has struck fear into their heart and allowed them to retreat and to fall face down. So that's where they are. But Jesus is gracious. He's even gracious to his accusers. Look at verse 7. So he said to them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I'm sure it was a little more shaky at this point. And Jesus answered them, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Evidently pointing to his disciples. All right. So they are in absolute awe. And Jesus has to get them back on track. This is wild. They came to arrest him. They, they quit in this moment trying to arrest him, and they fall face down. Whether they're terrified or they're worshiping, we don't know, but we know that they're not in the posture to seize this man anymore. And Jesus says, hey, weren't you guys doing something? Hey, weren't y'all get back up? Who are, you, who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, that's me. Army, maybe up to a thousand men being helped by a guy that they came to arrest. Unbelievable. And while Jesus is helping them get back on track, he is also helping his disciples remain safe in an incredibly unsafe situation. Here's what he says at the end of that verse. I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Verse 9 gives us more clarity to why he said that. Look at verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. All right, so everything in this moment seems to be going to plan. Not Judas' plan, Jesus' plan. Guys, don't miss this. I know there's a lot of times when we look at the Passion Week story, we can find ourselves having pity on the Savior because he was mistreated and he was hurt. Hear me out. I believe our hearts should ache, not because he was treated that way, but hear me out, because what he was receiving was due for us. We deserved what he received. That is what should break our hearts. He was not led to die. He gave his life that we may live. 
Don't miss what he's doing. So, so right here, Judas may think, man, I got everything going to plan. And no, no, Jesus has everything going to plan in this moment. But then Peter, if you have any understanding of New Testament, any understanding of the life of Peter, those two words, but then Peter, three words, but then Peter, that should be enough for you because you know something is about to come off the rails when his name is involved. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. All right, so Peter came ready. He was sitting on go. All jokes aside, Peter in this moment meant what he said right before he walked into the garden. Jesus, I am ready to die with you. Now, the sword that Peter would have been carrying on his person at that time, think less Excalibur and more Swiss Army knife with a little, little bit more lead. Okay, so, so we're, not, we're not talking, he is wielding this giant sword where everybody is in awe of what he's doing. He's got a dagger. Facing 500 to 1,000 men, he's got a dagger, and he's like, hey, look, I may not get all of you, but I can get one of you. He comes ready to fight for his Savior. Peter wants to protect Jesus at all costs. This moment for me is the defining moment that helps me understand Peter's personality a little bit better. Peter, after three and a half years of following Jesus, still did not understand the mission of Jesus. Look at verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? So Jesus rebukes Peter and tells him to put away the sword. The other gospel accounts have Jesus picking up the ear and miraculously putting it back on the side of Malchus's head and healing him in that moment. So not only does Jesus rebuke Peter, but he reminds Peter of the mission. And here is how that verse ends. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Here's a, probably one of the biggest theological questions. If you have not wrestled with it, you need to. What is the cup? What is the cup that Jesus was asked to drink by the Father? What was the cup that Jesus asked the Father? Please, please let it pass from me. The cup is what holds the wrath of God that will, be, that will be poured out for all sin. In Jeremiah 25, verse 15, write that, write that reference down. This is where we first see this cup. Jeremiah 25, verse 15, the prophet Jeremiah says this, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. This cup is reserved only and specifically for the enemies of God. And here we have Jesus being asked by the Father to drink it. I want you to let it sink in. Because we see nothing else in the gospel accounts 
that remotely puts Jesus in the state of despair as this cup. So he is standing in front of this thing, this moment in time where he is about to be offered the full cup to drink the entirety of the wrath that's inside this cup. He is being offered that and he's saying to the father, please, if there's any other way, please let this pass from me. But father, let it not be my will, but yours be done. So who... Who are the enemies of God? Because in Jeremiah's case, it would be anybody who was coming against the family of God. And so they would carry this cup and they would offer it to them and say, drink for you shall die. Well, who are the enemies of God? It's anybody who who has sinned and continues to live in sin. Romans 3.23 tells us this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who is included in the all? All. Us. You and me. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. It doesn't stop there. Paul writes in Romans, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin, so so if all of us have sinned, then what we have earned from that sin, the wages of our sin is what? It's death. We have earned that cup for ourselves. And not just us, but every human who has ever walked the face of this earth, except one. And it's the one that we see here who stands before the Father And the father asks him to drink. He says, Father, if there's any other way, please let it pass for me. That cup holds the wrath of God that we poured out on everyone who has sinned. That is them, that is you, and that is me. Peter didn't know it, but he was trying to stop Jesus from drinking the cup. Now, here's a huge side note. This is a whole other sermon in and of itself, but we were not going to get into it, but I don't want us to miss it. This reminds us, we cannot mess this up. If we have seen anything in John chapter 18, Jesus' will will be done. He commands the armies to do what he wants them to do. He commands his beloved to do what he wants them to do. Why? So that the Father will be glorified and we will receive the good of the gospel. So there's still one big question out there, I think. I think maybe it's in your heart. Maybe it's in your mind, okay? So we know that Jesus was asked by the Father to drink the cup. We see that in Matthew 26 with his response. We infer that. We know that Jesus will drink the cup, and and we'll get to that in two Sundays. But why? Why did the Father ask him to drink it? If his creation that he made turned on him with the first two, why would God ask his son to come and drink what was deserved by all of creation? Why would God do that? I'm so glad you asked. Open your Bibles to John chapter 3. I don't want you to miss this. 
Why did the Father ask the Son to drink the cup that was ours to drink? Verse 16 and following. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. God sent his son Jesus to drink the cup of God's wrath the wrath that you deserve and the wrath that I deserve, that we've earned because of our sin. This wrath would completely destroy us. But because he loves you and because he loves me, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to drink that cup for us. So our worship team comes back up and we get ready to move into a response time. But I don't want you to miss this next question because I think it is the question of a lifetime. I believe that this is the question every man, woman, boy, and girl must answer. So what do we do with what we've just heard? What do you do 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 with this? If we know that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and we know that that sin, that, that falling short, has earned for us the full wrath of God, but God in his grace has a better way. He sent his son to drink the full cup of his wrath, giving us salvation and freedom from sin. What do you do with that? I would beg you with all that I am, Repent of your sin and believe the gospel. Don't don't hear this and say, "Woo! I'm glad sin's taken care of. Now I can go do what I want. That is not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is we are free now from the thing that keeps trying to kill us. You are free to never return to it. That's what repentance is. Repentance is not just, oh, no, I made a mistake. I am so sorry, God. That's an apology. Repentance is when we turn from our wicked way. Whatever that thing is, whatever those things are, where we would used to run directly to it, we stop because God has illuminated to us. It's trying to kill us, and he is going to save us that we don't run back to it and say, well, I got it this time, God, I promise. But instead, instead of going back to the vomit, instead of going back to the place that keeps hurting us time and time and time again, what we do instead is we turn and we go to the Father who welcomes you, listen to me, without shame or guilt. You don't come to the Father with all the excuses. I can't believe that I used to do that, God. If you, I'm just so thankful that you broke me away from that, but I'm just telling you, God, I'm never going to... You know the story of the prodigal son. He had his lines rehearsed going back to his dad. When his dad saw him coming, he took off running towards him. And as he went to open his mouth to rehearse the lines, the father didn't let him speak for he just wrapped his arms around him. 
that is your Father's plan for you. Jesus, this night, yes, he was betrayed, but it was not outside of his sovereign will. It was always meant for him to come and to drink the cup that would kill us so that we may walk as free men and women. Church, this message is for you today. This message is for me. And you may say, well, Josh, I have been a believer for a long time. How is this still a message for me? Because the question on the table is, do you believe not only that Jesus is the Christ, but the Son of the living God, but also do you believe that in his name you have eternal life? Do you believe he is who he says he is? Therefore, it has radically changed how you live your life. If not, the offer of invitation today is this for you. Come. Come and receive the good that the Father has for you today because he loved you so much that he sent his son to die that you may live. Sent his son to free you from the sin that so easily entangles us. So maybe you're here this morning and your life is in shambles because of the sin that's not just got you, but that you love. Well, Josh, what do I do with that? Here's what I'm telling you to do with that right now in this response time, in your heart. I want you to go to the Father and I want you to confess specifically that sin, that sinful nature, that heart, the reason why you want to run to that over and over and over again. Confess that and say, God, I need you more than the breath that I'm breathing right now. Help me, save me. And I want you to see what God will do. It will be miraculous how God will change your life. It may not be how you think he should, but I promise you it will be better than you've ever thought. Imagine. This has been a production of Broadmoor Baptist Church. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with others and don't forget to subscribe. To help us spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe as well. They can find us wherever they prefer to get their podcasts. And if you'd like more information about Broadmoor, please visit our website at broadmoor.org or connect with us on your favorite social media platform where we're listed as at my Broadmoor. Thanks for listening.